0: FCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez wanting to thank all of you who became members or renewed your membership during this last fun drive. In this show, we're showcasing two plays, Brief Encounter and Ghosts of the River. KPFA's Antonio Ortiz was able to see the play, Brief Encounter, and talk with the director, Emma Rice. And later in the program, we'll hear from renowned playwright, Octavio Solis, about his play, Ghosts of the River. Stay with us. The American Conservatory Theater launched this season with the U.S. premiere of Nehi Theater's groundbreaking production of Noel Coward's Brief Encounter, adapted for the stage by Emma Rice. The American Conservatory Theatre has extended the run of Brief Encounter until Sunday, October 17th. Antonio Ortiz went out to see the play, get the audience feedback and also speak with Emma Rice, who directed Brief Encounter and adapted it for the stage.
0: I've fallen in love with you. Yes, I know. Tell me honestly, my dear, please. Tell me honestly if what I believe is true.
2: What do you believe?
1: That it's the same with you. That you've fallen in love too.
0: It sounds so silly. Why? I know you so little. It is true, though, isn't it? Yes. It's true. And that was a clip from the play Brief Encounter. And in studio, I have here next to me Emma Rice. To be honest, I know a little bit about your history. I know that, uh, from what I've read, that you've trained at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and that you've been a, you were an actor for the first 15 years of your career. Can you give our audience who may know less a brief idea of who you are and where you come from? Because they'll notice your accent.
2: Well, I'm from Britain. Um, yeah, I did train as an actress and, uh, I worked in various parts of the industry for many years. And I, I often say I sort of owe everything to my lack of success because I ended up doing quite alternative work, work on the fringe. I worked a lot with children's companies. So, you know, I didn't have a big glittering career. But what I did learn is really learn how to make theatre. I, um, I ended up going to Poland and training in Poland for a while. And and by the time I hit my 30s, it really was time to start directing, and the world changed.
0: And you describe knee-high theatre as you know their background was in comedy and clowning and how did you get into into working with that
2: i think that comedy and tragedy sits so closely you know next to each other i mean i love clowning i think it's very it's a very hard thing i think clowns are fantastic performers because they have to be very true and very instinctive and i think often we hide behind dark emotions and look impressive and actually you know life's fun and strange and you know it's quite rare that you might go to a funeral and not get the giggles at some point because those emotions are so close um i certainly came as i said i'd I'd been working in poland i was very earnest and had been doing a lot of very serious physical work and um high art you know sort of sort of work from eastern europe and then i met these band of brigands down in Cormo, who were wild and weather-beaten and played musical instruments and were very naughty and I fell in love with them totally and fell in love with the way that they worked but brought with me I think a discipline and uh an integrity that that they loved as well I think it was a sort of mutual meeting so they gave me my joy and my naughtiness and I gave them some good old-fashioned discipline.
0: So let's go to the play that uh, that's happening right now at the American Conservatory Theater brief encounter. How um how did you come across adapting that play to do? Yeah.
2: Well, I've never I'm not I'm not really a sort of academic director as I said, I've come through theater. I've been a practitioner. So I don't have a backlog of plays that I want to do. And I mean, the story is true. I've told it a few times since I've been in the US, but I was talking to a producer who'd seen my work and was wanting to find a project that would fit me nicely. And I went into his room and it was very swanky and, you know, all very posh. And he said to me, I want you to Peter Pan. And we had a very long conversation about Peter Pan, which I was a little bit interested in, but not very interested in. And at the end, I said, well, listen, thank you so much for your support, but it's not what I'm interested in. And as I said goodbye to him, my eyes just flicked to the side of the room and i saw he had a copy of brief encounter on top of the television i said now if you'd asked me about brief encounter this would have been a really different conversation and he said do you want to do it and i said yeah and that was it <laughs> um you know what's interesting at that point is um having on instinct decided this was a play i wanted to do a story on instinct. just in that moment i said i want to do that you then ask you become a detective and you think well why do i want to do that why didn't i feel that about peter pan and why do i feel about uh, that, that passionately about Brief Encounter. And that's the most exciting moment. It's the seminal moment of inspiration. I like to call it the itch, really. It's the bit of you that um, understands. You know, I don't know about you, but I understand what it is to be in love with the wrong person. I understand <laughs> what it is to lose in love. You know, I understand those dilemmas. So it's not rocket science. The the story speaks very directly to me, and I think it speaks very directly to most people.
0: I notice with your play that... There was a lot of use of film, and especially in the beginning scene just I, I felt like I was watching a, a movie of that time in that time i don't want to say that i was i, mean, I wasn't bored obviously it was just and it was kind of hard to follow sometimes the the plot and it wasn't because it it was just because there was so much going on and it was uh, it was like for me it was just amazing It's like wow this is kind of this is wonderful like what what is that about What is this video in the background about like how did you get uh did you get a lot of that inspiration from knee theater because i know that a lot of it was from outdoors and so you like are you trying to apply this whole feeling of you know open air inside like a con- contained theater
2: oh um i mean i don't i don't think there's any formula i always start with the story and then and, and work you know in the end there is no template and that would be the death of any of us if we recreated anything um so the the job is to create um i knew i wanted to use film because it's such a famous film is that i thought that would be fun is that i didn't want to deny that it was a famous film and yet it's a piece of theater so it's very theatrical and very filmic i'm i'm most upset that you didn't that you didn't get the story clearly because i pride myself on my storytelling it's a very simple story
0: <laughs> so you might have to tell me more well, about that tell i got me. i got the idea that they were their lovers they had have... but
2: what do you mean you got the idea oh, okay. it's a story i
0: know for Sure, they were lovers, you, and they were married, and it was that was the hard part of and that's a hard part of an, in a relationship if you're in a committed relationship and you fall in love with someone else, how do you deal with that? Yeah, the whole idea of connecting with someone is such a it's a very special thing, like hardly ever do you connect with someone where you feel that you and that person are in that moment at that time, mm-hmm. and I see where you got where you were going with that in that story, and I did feel it with with those two characters. And that's just a hard thing to be able to express to the audience because I think a lot of that stuff is internal. It's all about mm-hmm. how do I feel inside? How do I like with us right now? Like, am I connecting with Emma right now? Do I feel a connection? Do I feel like I'm present? And hardly ever do you get that. And that's even harder to give out to the audience when it's kind of an internal thing. Uh, and I think you did it masterfully in this play, just because me and my friend we just came out like wow this was a great play we were in awe
2: and i think that i mean it's very british isn't it which is that we're famous for not really saying what we mean <laughs> that there's, everything's going on underneath the surface but it's a it is a masterful play not what i've done with it but the Noel coward's words which i've adapted are phenomenal you know the the sort of the iceberg of emotion that's going on underneath those two people and, and as i say i think we all recognize that we all recognize the the thunderbolt of recognition and and then most of us will recognize when it's not the right moment in your life you're the wrong time and the wrong place for that to happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And what I also liked about the play was that uh, you had the main story and that was the one that was the most stressful you know to watch (laughs) and then you had the other uh, two, two other love stories that were comedic and you know that whole idea of just having this these comedic stories on the side just to kind of make it not so heavy and it was kind of a great play on both ends so that the combination, the dance between the three was pretty was pretty awesome
2: no, oh, I like that 's a nice expression. the dance between the three i I think it's a it 's a letter a love letter to love you know it 's about love in all its forms, so there's young love when anything's possible, and you know we 're not all damaged, and then there's you know our our impossible love at the center, you know our two lovers, and then there's sort of second time round third time round love, you know the fact that you know it comes again, you know, and it's a great moment for all of us to get old enough to realize. It will come round, you know there there'll be more you know there's it's a big, long, wonderful life,
0: so I wanted to ask you, <laughs> are you a romantic?
2: oh God, yes, I'm a terrible, terrible romantic, yeah, and I've been in terrible trouble in my life and and will continue to be you know again that's a you realize that that's not going to stop happening you know and i love human beings and i live a fantastic life and i do meet incredible people and you get into trouble but i wouldn't have it any other way
0: okay so let's go listen to what some of the audience members thought on opening night on september 16th christina sacramento i thought it was excellent and very very beautiful the way they integrated music dance film it was just phenomenal ben uh, evansville indiana The whole production is just complete in every aspect of what they're doing. Yeah, it it definitely draws you in every moment of the play. Brian from Boston. I thought it was amazing. I mean, it, it, it was an amazing spectacle, and the movement was so beautiful and lyrical.
1: My name is Sally. I'm from San Francisco. It was, a, it was an amazing blend of movement and song and mixed media. And for their use of film, they would actually walk in and out of the film, like right in front of you. Like seriously, you have to see it to believe it.
0: And I'm Kevin, and I'm from San Francisco, and I, I agree with Sally. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of the Purple Rose of Cairo, that movie where people are popping in and out of screen. It's, it really has to be seen to be believed.
1: My name is Anna, and I'm from San Francisco. I absolutely love this play. I thought it integrated film and theater in a beautiful way. Like, I actually fell into the play. Like, I didn't feel like I was watching a play anymore. I felt like I was just part of that time, which I thought it was was new. It was different. It was great.
3: Uh, My name is Steve, and I'm from Oakland, and I thought it was one of the most
0: brilliant pieces of theater I've ever seen. I was pulled in and loved every minute. Okay, so uh, now that you've heard, uh, how do you feel about those responses from the crowd here in in San Francisco Bay Area?
2: It's overwhelming. It's fantastic. And, of course, as a director, you rarely hear responses like that. And you also rarely hear, because they're usually talking to you, and you know that everybody's being polite and lovely. So it's wonderful for me to hear that. I particularly love, um, I think it was the woman that said that she fell into the production. She didn't feel she was watching it, because I always want my work to for people to feel that they're at a live event and that they're part of it because there'd be no point in doing a play unless you had an audience there. And I think there's a great warmth coming from the stage and into the auditorium. So I loved that. I think another gentleman said that he was pulled into it. So both those things are being really engaged and and very much part of the event. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and that's how I felt when when it first started. I mean, especially when you had part of the cast singing along and just kind of engaging the audience right before the show started. I mean, I guess the show started right when you walked into the theater for the audience members, that is there was something about it that I felt like I was never on the outside of the fourth wall I was actually on stage myself as an audience member and that was kind of that was yeah. I don't know I was very amazed by that
2: well it's um, I said earlier that there were no formulas but there are things that I will never do you know and I'm not a fan of the fourth wall I don't believe that um, which is when you people stand on a stage and pretend the audience aren't there and pretend that they're somebody else i find that very very bizarre so my actors will always talk to the audience and will always interact and then transform and then we love it because we love magic we love to get involved but um i don't like to pretend so (laughs) (laughs) it's a lovely game and we're all playing it at the same time
0: and um, this game has been played since uh, 2007, is that correct? That's correct. Is there any anything more you want to add about uh, this brief encounter and how to get people to, you know, what would inspire someone who has never been into plays to just want to watch this?
2: Oh, because it's a great night out. You will hear some fantastic music. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. And I think it's really <laughs> easy to understand what's going on. It's, You know, this isn't... Um, You know, difficult Shakespeare. This is just about the human heart and that you'll see human life on stage. I think it's irresistible and it's been going for several years now, so I'm not alone. You heard what the people
0: said, they're right.
2: (laughs) You've just got to come and experience it.
0: And that was the voice of Emma Rice, director of Brief Encounter, playing at the American Conservatory Theatre. I'm Antonio Ortiz signing out. Noel
1: Coward's Brief Encounter has extended its run until Sunday, October 17th. For more information, you can go to www.act-sf.org. Every person who has ever crossed the Rio Grande has left a part of themselves in the shallows, in the reeds, their identities, their past, and even their lives. Ever since it became a line of demarcation between the U.S. and Mexico, this river has borne stories of heartbreak, hope, terror, and renewal. And in its black sooty waters, I feel the ghosts of those stories beckoning me to write them down. The words of Octavio Solis as he describes his latest play, Ghosts of the River, which is a shadow theater play that incorporates silhouetted masked actors and live music along with Octavio Solis' epic writing into a unique collection of ghost stories remembering those who have encountered the murky waters of the Rio Grande. This play just finished its run in San Jose and will be showing at the Brava Theater starting October 28th and running through the 8th of November. Octavio Solis recently joined me in the studio and we started our conversation with his sharing his experience living along the border.
3: The border was a very, very present entity to me. From a very early age, we would sit out on our porch at night and we'd see groups of people that were, uh, recent crossers who had just crossed. They were going, they, they were headed to, you know, whatever destination they needed to get, to get to. And we could tell by their brisk walk, by their cautious, uh, demeanor by the, the the way they sort of clung to the shadows and to the cotton fields, we could tell that they were on the run. And even during the day, we'd see them. And and then that's only half of it, though. The other half was that we'd also see the Border Patrol cruisers or the vans uh drive by slowly with their lights on at night, or they'd stop us on the corner and ask us, did you see somebody dressed like so-and-so and so-and-so go this way? Or uh, will you keep an eye out for them and call us if you see anything? So we were always living in the middle of this cat and mouse game that seemed to be played along the border for most of my life, for most of my life growing up in El Paso anyway.
1: You also interviewed many residents, lawyers, immigrants, and law enforcement. What did you learn about those interviews, and, and what surprised you?
3: What, what really surprised me in the interviews is just how complex the issues are. I spoke to one attorney who was representing a woman who had, of her own free will, turned her husband in, who was an abusive man, hmm. uh, and had threatened to kill her, to the Border Patrol. And he was immediately impounded and deported to Horace. She felt safe until um, it was discovered that she was also here, quote-unquote, illegally. And her relatives, who were already resident aliens in in the U.S., really tried hard through the legal system to keep her in the country um, legally and to change her status. Because going back meant going back to a man who was simply waiting to hurt her, to make her pay for his deportation. So, it, it, the, hearing that story just just made me feel the tremendous humanity uh, and complexity, the various colors and shadings uh, of of the uh, border issue. That it's never simply black and white, and it's one of the stories that I felt I had to depict in uh, Ghosts of the River.
1: We should tell folks that there are five stories.
3: Yes, there are five stories. Some of them, uh, one of them is is based on an event that happened to me growing up. Uh, an encounter with the border patrol another one is uh um an event that uh, a story that I d- that I developed based on an account that an actual field agent had told me while I was out there in El Paso gathering data and shooting video et cetera. one of them was uh, a a a story uh that was told to me th- by by an attorney uh the one that I just mentioned uh-huh. um and one of them I, uh, I I just made up. It was it, it it just seemed like I wanted to do something more fun, something involving a scary monster. I kind of told my own version of the chupacabra. troll, <laughs> the chupacabra, or the or, or you know everyone knows nurse, uh, the fairy tales like the troll under the bridge. Right. And And there's a notorious bridge in El Paso called El Puente Negro. Which is actually a railroad bridge oh, really? that that uh, that is, uh, is is black and, and spans the river and is used for moving uh, trade uh, through rail from both the U.S. to the Mexico side and vice versa, and it's when a train goes by that people jump on the tracks. Try to run along the train or get, hop the train and try to get across, uh, and in doing so often get themselves killed. Right. And they, right. they get arms and legs lopped off and, and the agents are waiting right there on the other side ready to catch them and if they're, uh, If if they come in enough numbers, some of them might might make it across and some of them will invariably get caught. Uh, But it's in that struggle that there are a lot of casualties because of the dangers of trying to uh, cross on on an actual railroad bridge while the train is passing.
1: I wanted to talk about something very interesting that you're using, which is the shadow casting method Mm -hmm. that you were talking about earlier. Can you describe it for our listeners?
3: Sure. Um, is this, this is actually the, the second project I've worked on with Larry Reed, who is the artistic director and executive director of, uh, of Shadowlight, and uh, and he devised this this terrific theatrical form um, based on his experience and training with the Wayang shadow puppet uh, theater um, um, tradition in Bali. Balinese shadow puppets are among the 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 most uh, recognizable. When you see them, they're often you find them in uh, many shops that, that deal in in in, uh, in uh, Pacific Islander uh, works and uh, and um, he was trained by some masters in in how to do that and he knows a language too. He learned the language. He's really quite brilliant, and he devised. Uh, his own form, he translated it to, uh, to, to, um, for American audiences, audiences into this, this larger, more cinematic form, uh, that employs not just the use of a single light source to cast shadows onto a screen, but three light sources, all the, each one of which can be, uh, brought down and brought up in, in a, with, with a fader. Uh, so you can do crossfading between one scene and another, um, and and he works with a much larger palette, a bigger screen, um, and and uh, a, a much larger twenty feet by thirty feet, um, and he uses color. He also uses uh, he, he uses live actors as well as puppetry. Actual cut out puppets cardboards. Um he he created he 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 uh created really kind of invented his own sort of mask for um for actors to wear so that they can present a kind of profile, a kind of character face in shadow form and still keep the actor's eyes always on the screen.
2: Wow.
1: You've also incorporated Fabiana Rodriguez, who's the art director.
3: She just brings a visual dynamism to our shadow work that is just uh, unique. Really, really inspiring to everyone. Um, she, she's also the, as much as they're, they're, my stories, I wrote them to reflect my experience, experiences with that river and that border. It it feels like like she like she is at the heart of the activism in this work. She, her 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 activist soul it really helps energize and provides the engine for for this work. She's really committed that way, and it has infused us all with that sort of fervor that she brings to to her work. Yeah. Um, so we feel in many ways that this isn't just a, a, a personal artistic statement, but that there is that social conscience now really fueling this work and it's in large part due to her own uh, activist soul which is deeply invested in the work
1: I did want to go back to the shadow casting and why you felt that this was the way to tell the stories
3: Um, some plays I write and they feel like they're plays that takes place on a stage they feel like they happen in a more concentrated space uh, and the more I've been working on my plays, the more I feel like I want to take the plays from the sort of episodic Shakespearean mode to a more concentrated, uh, one room kind of play. The kind of play that takes place with one setting. But there are also the kind of stories that I feel inside of me that, that, that need expressing that require a different approach that require more of a, 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 of a of a bigger wider palette, um, one that that uh, one where the stories take place over many different settings, and require the use of things like you know Humvees where we see the river, uh, a place where the river is an actual presence. Um, and, and can be depicted, can be shown. And also where ghosts can take on a different embodiment rather than just an actor walking out and saying, you know, I'm, I'm the dead, you know. So these stories needed a bigger, wider palette. In a nutshell, these stories felt more cinematic. And I don't have the budget to make a movie. But what we're doing with these shadows is making live movies. You're seeing a live movie. Every time you watch our shadow play it's presented to you as if it were a movie your experience will be very much like you're watching a movie um except it's all happening live before you it is not, none of it's recorded even the music which is provided by Cascada de Flores right. uh, is all being is all being played live
1: that's interesting, because you would think that initially, if you don't know too much about shadow casting, that it might be somewhat limiting, but you're saying that it's giving you, as the playwright here, more freedom.
3: Oh, yeah, it's very freeing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can have, in any one point in our, in our story, there's an actor that plays a, a certain character, say uh, an actor who's playing Nacho, and then in the next scene, a shadow caster is playing Nacho with a little cardboard cutout of of him. And then later somebody else is playing Nacho in a smaller one. And then sometimes there's a, uh, an actor who's playing the character wearing a mask in front of the screen, casting a shadow on it, but he's not speaking. The voice is being provided by somebody else on microphone who's watching the action always on the screen and reading from the script at the same time. So... 3 4 5 people can be playing the same character.
1: Do you think that the mainstream theater world is more open to the range of the Latino experience and with that the universality of the human experience?
3: Yes, I think they are. I think they are and I think they're looking for it even in places like, you know, Wisconsin or Minnesota where where we don't have the kind of uh, community, the larger, more uh, entrenched Second, third, fourth generation communities that are, that are, that we find here in San Francisco, Southern California, Texas, New Mexico, New York, Florida, etc. Uh, even they're hungry for that. Even they want to do it. It gets harder for them to do it because they want to cast it right, mm-hmm. and they can't job in actors from New York and California all the time. So when they do choose a work, they choose the work that has the smaller cast. You know, the the Jose Rivera play, like uh, the Cloud Tectonics, mm-hmm. which I think has only two or uh, characters, um, because then they can do it and say, okay, we're we're actually um, doing Latino work now in our season. Uh, when, uh, when they did El Paso Blue at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, it was the first Latino play they had done there. Ever. But since then, they've had Lisa Loomer, um, they've had Luis Alfaro there, uh, and they've had, uh, um, uh, they're gonna, they're going to have, um, Culture Clash there, producing new work by them. So it's, it's, it's opening up. Um, um, where, where I find trouble. Not not trouble where where I find that the doors aren't opening so readily for me are in those theaters where um they can't quite go that dark that quickly, and my plays tend to get a little dark they 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 deal with uh with a harsh environment characters who live on the fringe uh often in a world of violence and um and many other harsh realities and and they can't really find that they, 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 they're, they really don't feel that they're ready to present that kind of Latino vision to their audiences just yet.
1: Do you feel your comedy's dark as
3: well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, I thought I was writing all all these stories as comedies for, for Ghosts of the River. Uh-huh. I thought they were all comic. And they are. They should be funny. Uh, except they turn. They turn and they darken. And, and it's hard to pull your feet out of that once you're in it and, and have the same laughs. They're, they're darker laughs. I think of them as sort of comic and then, then they, they turned. And that, you know, if I'm honest with myself, that's sort of part of my vision is that I have this hope and then there's always this darkness at the end of that, you know?
1: Well, Octavio Solis, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on KPFA.
3: Oh, this is terrific, Amelia. I'm honored to be here.
1: That's the voice of Octavio Solis and we've been talking about his play Ghosts of the River that will start its run on October 28th and run through the 8th of November at the Bravo Theater in San Francisco. For more information, you could go to www.shadowlightghosts.org. You've been listening to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Many thanks to Antonio Ortiz for his segment and for Erica Bridgman, who is at the controls. i have been Host Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. You serve, your right
0: to serve your right to be alone. I'm State Capitol correspondent Christopher Martinez.
1: We are unsafe because our prisons are teeming warehouses of criminogenic
0: factories. California spends $10 billion a year to house 160,000 inmates in the state's overcrowded prisons. All next week on The Morning Show, we bring you Criminal Neglect, California's failing prison system.
2: We haven't set limits on our prisons in California. We we, we never shut the doors. and We crowd them in and crowd them in and crowd them in. And, um, and I think we would continue to do that if there wasn't a court that says you're not going to do